0: Here we are then, or then and now, now and then, here we are now with chapter number eight in our series, Impressions of Grace and Grit. And Treya has just found out that she needs the strongest course of chemotherapy, to have any chance, at all, of fighting off this cancer. And more information comes to light, more things are found out as she keeps meeting with doctors, and she gets prepared for the course. For example, she finds out there's a 50% chance that this will permanently damage her ovaries. So it's going to put her into an early menopause, which will mean, quite sadly, that she won't be able to have children. And she's very upset about this. This is devastating. Of course, it might not. It might not have that effect and she might still be able to have kids. But just the thought, just the chance is so hard. And she thinks, well, why is this happening now? Her question is not so much of why is this happening to me It's more why now? And she thinks, what would have happened? Like, what would life be like if this was happening to me in 10 years' time? Well, she would have been married for Ken for 10 years instead of just the one year. And maybe she would have a child. Or two, she would already have a family. And that makes things very different. That does look different when you're in that position. And then she'd be, well, she'd be almost 50. And she thinks, well, that's, that's still pretty young, but also it's pretty different to being 37 or so, which she is now. And she does also think outside of herself. She thinks of the young kids who get leukemia or Hodgkin's and they haven't even had a chance to live as much as she has, to travel, to learn, to explore, to find their partner, to do these sorts of things. There's always someone worse off than you. And she contemplates this and does make her Come back into a sense of gratitude, and that's a tricky one. That's a tricky ball there, because you don't want to say all the time, "Well, oh, there's always someone worse, there's always someone worse. Because the truth is, she's in a terrible situation. This is a really bad rung of luck. If you get cancer, you are unlucky. It really is something. So it's a complex, it's an ever-changing thing to assess yourself. How you feel about yourself and how you feel about your position in life is always being changed. Both by how you contend with the things in your life and the actual things themselves about what comes along. And part of that is your ability to contemplate what's it like for someone who's worse. So the next step is for them to, for Treya, well for Treya and Ken, but it's for Treya, to implant a portacath catheter in her chest and this gets attached to a sort of portable pump so she can be mobile four days each month while she's getting her chemotherapy treatment and basically what this is what what chemotherapy is is it's a, it's a poison and it's administered through a drip And normally when you have a drip, it's for a short-term thing and they just stick a needle in your arm. But because she's going to be having it for days at a time and multiple times throughout the year, well, they're getting something a little bit more permanent, a little bit more solid. And she even has this comment to the doctor about, oh, I wish, you know, she's, she's quite scared getting this in, because getting a portacath, well, this operation is rather quite simple. It's just a needle, and it's quite small. It's a harmless operation. It's very simple. It's not like getting a breast removed, which she has now, most recently. And yet, she reflects that this is a very daunting operation to have, because it means you're committing to the therapy. It means it makes it real that you're really going to go through this. It means it makes it real that this is actually happening. And she does make a comment to the doctor sort of about this, that sort of implies it. And the doctor, well, they say, you know, this is very easy to take out. It's a very simple thing. You just take it out and it will heal over. There's no permanent damage at all from getting a catheter put in. And yet somehow she knew that the doctor also knew what she was saying. So when you're dealing with cancer, sometimes even the small components of it, well, they still come back to the larger demon of the overall sickness. And while she's having some drugs for this operation painkillers, she's feeling a bit dreamy, a bit drowsy, and she has the thought that well, there was a soul up there that took it as took it upon itself to come and have a very brief reincarnation. And this was, well, the other year when Trey got pregnant by Ken, and she'd had been thinking for most of her life that she couldn't get pregnant. She'd been under the impression that she was barren. And yet this thing, this occurrence, this pregnancy with Ken, she took as a kind of sign from these souls from the other world as to say, well, let me just remind you that you can get pregnant. And it's clever that she, well, when we talk about reincarnation, you you sort of do have to be a bit mystical. So it's clever that she's had this thought. Well, it's telling that she's had this thought when she's doped up on the painkillers, maybe. Maybe that's just a way of writing. Maybe it's just a way of indicating how she really feels, or maybe not. I don't know. Whether she really believes in reincarnation in that way how much weight she gives to that belief or how complex that belief is, well, that's still to be found out. That's still to be discussed. And we have talked a little bit about it in the previous chapter where Ken had the dream where he went to, the bardo, where all the souls hang out. Then he talked to the baby that was about to be born by his friend. But that's another thing that we can discuss more of. And this thing of oh, thinking you can't have kids and then... She also has this thing of, oh, she'll think she'll die young. And she thinks she won't marry till after the age of 30. It's all these sort of images that she's been carrying within herself throughout her life. And now that she's got cancer, they're coming up. She's facing them. And they're becoming more real. And she's having to actually really concretely look at these beliefs about herself that she's had. For so many years, oh, she can't have kids. She might die before the age of 50. She might not find a life partner. And when she looks at them, she finds a determination and she takes it as a way of turning it around And actually saying, no, I'm going to make this my goal. I am going to have a kid. And I have found my life partner. And I am going to live past 50. So those images are reassessed, made concrete, and then put into positive light. And that's inner work that she is doing. In a sort of retaliation against this cancer. And it says a lot about her character. It says a lot about her spirit. It says a lot about her soul. And there's also this funny thing. Because Trey is getting chemotherapy. They're sort of in and out of these hospitals. And Ken, I don't know if you know Ken Wilbur what he looks like, but he's got a bald head. He shaves his head. And this brings along this really curious <laughs> this really curious phenomenon where everyone thinks he's the patient. <laughs> and he sort of reflects on this and says, "Oh, I can almost tell that everyone's thinking, "Oh, he doesn't seem so bad because he's really fit, really bubbly, sometimes smiling. And he's walking around and all the other patients are there thinking, oh, maybe chemotherapy isn't so bad. And there's this funny story where, well, Ken and Trey have been turning up to this uh, doctor's appointment. And what, what do you call the, the person that parks the car? Not the chauffeur, the valet. The valet person has been parking their car. And then one time, Ken is late, so he comes up by himself and the valet guys like oh you poor thing you've turned up this time without her and he thinks well am i going to explain that uh actually no it's it's her not me and he thinks oh no that's too that's too difficult to explain so he just says he just says ah ain't that a bitch <laughs> so that's very funny he just went along with it and sort of brushed it off So, that's just another little side story, which is quite funny. Now, back to chemotherapy. There's something in those words. There's something chilling about the word chemotherapy. And if you don't even know much about it, even then... Stories can be quite horrific. Stories can be quite scary. And it is just something that, it's like it sort of just wafts through. This impression of what chemotherapy is, even if you haven't heard the horrific stories. If you haven't heard them directly, you still get a, they're still urban myths, sort of. There's still things that you hear about. It's not like there's anyone ever walking around speaking of their good experiences of chemotherapy. And basically, well, it's a whole bunch of chemicals. You've got anti-nausea agencies. You've got sort of bad effects of that. And there are sort of other chemicals that are trying to well, well, how do I how do I put this? It's sort of like. I don't want to go into the specific chemicals, like like, you've got reglin and benadryl and adriamacin. I can't even pronounce them. So I'm not going to try and tease apart these specific chemicals. But think of it this way. You get given a chemical and that has an effect. And then the effects of that chemical, you actually give another chemical to counteract the effects. And then you've got the effects of that chemical to counter those effects. So you're sort of like being pushed around chemically because of all these different things and you're trying to offset the different processes and the symptoms and the nausea and all that. And consider this, chemotherapy, it's going straight into the blood, straight into the blood system. Now, most medicine, ABC medicine, is like a pill. And the idea is there, well, you eat the pill and it goes into your stomach and then it dissolves through your stomach and through your digestive system, it's taken into the bloodstream. Now, that's a much more longer round trip. If you're just taking a basic ABC painkiller, that's the trip that the chemical is going to take. Now, there are lots of administration methods depending on what the chemical is or what the treatment is. But essentially, when you're putting something straight into your bloodstream, it's straight in. It's immediately there. The effects are immediate, unfiltered. And the body is working with that in full flight. There's nothing more fluid than blood. There's nothing more active than blood. And this goes the same with recreational drugs. The most hardcore recreational drugs, the most destructive recreational drugs are administered through injection. And essentially, there are certain principles with chemotherapy. And you've got chemotherapy, and you've got radiation, and, well, you've got surgery as well. So these are the main things that you do with, with cancer. And surgery is... Quite simple, you just cut it out. But with chemotherapy and radiation, there's another principle, which is cancer cells divide and therefore grow faster than other cells. So you administer something that kills fast-growing cells. And if you administer enough of it, at the right time, in the right amount, well then, you kill the cancer cells. But the problem is, it also kills the other cells that are fast growing, and those are the cells that are in you. Cells that, like, things like stomach lining, and things like hair growth, that's why chemo patients, they lose their hair. Things like the lining in the mouth, these sorts of cells, so you can get sores in your mouth. So just try to imagine you're, you're messing around with your blood chemically. You're fighting a disease, a disease on a cellular level. And it's affecting your feelings in every way. It's affecting your digestive system, it's affecting your heart. It's affecting your reproductive system. All of it, all over. So it's pretty intense stuff. So the first time they go in for the beginning of this treatment Treya Gets off and on her way with the chemicals going in. And she has this thought, which is how nice it would be to commit suicide. And she sort of looks over at Ken and says to him, How nice it would be to commit suicide. And he takes her by the hand and he whispers in her ear, Terry, honey, the reglin is really hitting you hard. From the way your face looks, I think you have a bad histamine reaction. So the chemicals aren't working quite nicely on her and it could be that this chemical is something that she has a allergic reaction to and then a few minutes later well she's put into a full blown panic attack and this is the worst feeling she can remember ever having and she just wants out of this body So Ken gets the next chemical, tries to hold her still because she's jumping around all over the place. And the next chemical, the next step in the process is meant to offset these. And she calms down a little bit, but she's still in this hyper-intensified state. And as the chemicals progress and they're able to move out of the hospital, they go across to their room, which is across the street. And this is in a hotel where they can continue the treatment. So you don't have to be in hospital for the chemicals to be administered. It's usually just for the first little bit or certain parts of it. And then the other parts, well, Ken is qualified enough to administer. So this is the first night, and she's not responding well. She's had this full-blown panic attack, and she's been put into this painful state. As all of her systems are reacting to these new sudden hits of chemicals, these poisons. And she says to Ken, can you read me some of your book? No Boundary. So this is one of his books that he's written on self-inquiry and the question of who am I? And this sort of passage he's adopted from Roberto Assagioli. Roberto Assagioli. Asagoghioli A S S A G I O L I And he is well he's a Italian psychiatrist and he's a pioneer of humanistic and transpersonal psychology, similar to Ken Wilbur, but his real staple is psychosynthesis. And that's his sort of contribution to the world of psycho uh, psychology, which is the idea that, well, individuals are progressive things and they're morphing, which means that any technique or any system that you need to apply to them or help them with or that they need to do needs to also have some sort of moving, changing Adapting quality to it. And that's why it's called psychosynthesis. Because you're synthesizing things. So you're not just taking lots of different parts. But you're also melding them together. And it's almost like a psychology. It sounds a bit like a metapsychology. Which is a psychology about psychology. Or a principle in psychology. That can be applied to multiple psych- psychologies. So this as a... And is not just a behaviorist or talking about morality or value spheres or cognition. But he's actually saying, well, you need to sort of synthesize these. And if you put that into a therapeutic setting, then, well, it's like, do you want to be doing some regression work? Or do you want to be doing some shadow work? Or do you want to be doing interpersonal work? Or do you want to do self-image work? Or do you want to work with the inner child or the inner adult? And it's like, how do we synthesize each of these into something more adaptive? And he's just one of the people who have influenced Ken Wilber in this situation. And the other one is the Sri Ramamahashi. Mahar- Sri Ramana Maharashi, who is the philosopher who most probably, who, sorry, not most probably, who did most probably. <laughs> Jeez, I'm really tumbling with this one, aren't I? How do I say this clearly? He's the philosopher who made most famous the inquiry question, who am I? Okay, that's how we say it. <laughs> so, this sort of gets to another thing, which is these thing, these people who write about psychology and philosophy and the perennial philosophy, like Ken Wilber, and he's aware of this, they're in a sense not doing something new. And the way Ken describes it is, well, in this book, he was taking an old idea and trying to put a modern voice to it. And there's a job for that. There's something important in that. Because times are always changing. Languages are always changing. Words are always changing. And, well, the conditioning of the peoples of a society have different needs, which is why new techniques are always being developed. New processes are being created. Now, the actual structures of consciousness and human development, they're always there. They don't change. The structure is given. It exists, it's there, and it's always going to be there. It's really just up to us to discover it. Now, how effective a bunch of words are in order to help people discover those structures depends on, well, first of all, how much the author has discovered those structures for themselves, and second of all, how good they are with words. So to say that Sri Rama Maharashi is the inventor of this question, who am I? Well, not really. And then to say that Ken is taking this question from him, well, that's not really it either. I mean, is it, can you put a, a copyright on the question, who am I? No. But you can copyright certain amounts of words. You can copyright a book. And if that has certain amounts of shapes to its words, then well it's going to be something that's useful to understand. That's useful for discovering certain structures of consciousness. And that will always be the case. The question, who am I, will always be there. And there will always be new people with words, learning how to speak with a peoples of a time and a place to help discover those structures, to to discover this answer to this question, who am I? So, Treya is having her treatment, and she's asked Ken to read some of No Boundary. And this is what he says. Sweetheart, as I read this, try to realize the meaning of each sentence as clearly as you can. I have a body... But I am not my body. I can see and feel my body. And what can be seen and felt is not the true seer. My body may be tired or excited. Sick or healthy. Heavy or light. Anxious or calm. But that has nothing to do with my inward eye. The witness. I have a body, but I am not my body. I have desires, but I am not my desires. I can know my desires, and what can be known is not the true knower. Desires come and go, floating through my awareness but they do not affect my inward eye, the witness. I have desires, but I am not my desires. I have emotions, but I am not my emotions. I can feel and sense my emotions, and what can be felt and sensed is not the true feeler. Emotions pass through me, they do not affect my inward eye, the witness. I have emotions, but I am not emotions. I have thoughts, but I am not my thoughts. I can see and know my thoughts, and what can be known is not the true knower. Thoughts come to me, and thoughts leave me they do not affect my inward eye, the witness. I have thoughts, but I am not my thoughts. Then affirm as concretely, concretely as you can, I am what remains, a pure center of awareness, an unmoved witness of all these thoughts, emotions, feelings, and sensations. And Treya says that that helps. It's a pretty difficult situation. When you're in pain and when you're suffering, well, that's when it's really hard to witness. That's really the most difficult time to disidentify and to step back into the witness. Because pain is arresting. It's possibly the most arresting thing. and then ken has this wonderful quote from nietzsche or he says that nietzsche the only the only way he used to be able to get to sleep at night was to promise himself he would kill himself in the morning <laughs> and so that's a if you don't know frederick nietzsche well he's a existential philosopher who had a he had a sense of pessimism about him he had a sense of just Sort of like a skeptical, sort of cynical tone to him. Like, ugh, sort of a a negative view. And, well, Nietzsche had his hang-ups. He had his own diseases and his own, how do we say, disabilities. So maybe that comes across in his philosophy. But it's very funny that the only way you can get to sleep is to... (laughs) Is to promise yourself, try that. Next time you can't get to sleep, this could be a great how-to episode. We can do a how-to episode on how to fall asleep. Frederick Nietzsche says, promise yourself to kill yourself in the morning. That way you'll doze right off. You'll have nothing to worry about. <laughs> and that is pretty funny. So Ken keeps reading to Treya, and by that way we actually find out a bit about No Boundary. And it does help her, because she's in pain, she's suffering, she's having a bad reaction to these chemicals, and to just listen to his voice and to hear the words is good for her, at least in a little bit of a way. And of course, for Ken, well, it's good for him too to hear these words because he's written them. And now he's really actually having to put them into practice. He's actually having to walk the walk with them in a very real life and very intense situation. To the extent that you actually realize that you are not for example, your anxieties, then your anxieties no longer threaten you. And another way Ken Wilber puts this is that it it sort of hurts more, but it bothers you less. So when you have pain, and that is occupying every single part of your immediate experience of existence, then that's really painful that is very painful but when you have pain and it's only occupying a portion of your total experience your total immediate experience of reality well then it's less painful in a sense your experience of it is less arresting now it's not it's not less painful in that there's there is less pain You can, in both those situations, have exactly the same amount of pain. So say we've got two people who have exactly the same amount of pain. Now, one of them doesn't have these realizations of higher consciousness. They don't meditate. They don't know what the witness is. They don't know any theory of the perennial philosophy. None of that. Well, then that person, all they've got is the pain. All they've got is the immediate sense of everything is in pain. Now, person B, let's say this person B, maybe it's Treya, maybe it's Ken, maybe it's anyone. It could be anyone. Say this person's got meditative experience, they understand the perennial philosophy, and they know about the, the witness and they can step into the witness. Well, then that person's going to step into the witness And they're going to see that there's more happening. It's going to be a wider context. And in that way, this person experiences the pain very much differently to person A. Person B has a very different experience. Now, person A and B both have the same amount of pain. And yet they both have a very different experience of pain. And that's the difference. That's, that's what the, the quality of realizing a wider context. And the deeper you go, well, then you start to intuit a deep inward sense of freedom, a lightness, a kind of release, he says. And there's many metaphors for this. It's a metaphor of lying on the ocean floor in the deep sea and seeing the waves crashing overhead. And then there's also the metaphor of the eye of the cyclone, which is where right in the middle of the storm there is peace. And when you realize that, well, the storm doesn't go away. It's still there, there's still things going on, but your sense of it is different. And then he goes on to talk about, well, how far does this go? This feeling of Iness, he calls it, this sense of self. Now, when we say, who am I, when we try and answer this question, well, we're inquiring into this sense of, well what is triggered when you hear that question what can you not what you can just say about it but what is it to you behind the eyes in your quiet hour and then we take this thought experiment of say say we take you out of your country and you put you in, we put you in a different country and then we say okay so you've got new friends new surroundings new experiences and you'll start to have new thoughts And yet, you still feel like you. You still feel a sense of, well, I am. I exist. And that's your sense of self. So it hasn't changed. So your thoughts, your mind and your body, well, that has changed. That's not the same as last year. It's not the same as even 10 years or 20 years or however old. It's always changing. But this single thing of self, of what it feels like to be you, that there is a you-ness, well, that hasn't changed. And then we can take the step to say that, well, maybe it's just that there is one sense of self which is populating with different thoughts and different feelings and different memories and different situations and different friends and different experiences. And that wouldn't be such a stretch because, well, you can't even remember. Well, can you even remember what you had for dinner last night? What did you have for dinner last night? Well, you really got to scratch your head for it, don't you? I had veggies and rice. It's easy for me because I have the same thing. <laughs> but in the same sense, well, you've forgotten you were the same person. And the image that be uses is that maybe a hundred years ago, perhaps another person was in this spot like you are And gazed with an awe and a yearning in your heart, in his heart, of the dying glaciers. And that feeling, well, that's the same as what you have, your sense of self. And you can say, well, the feeling of awe, or the feel of yearning to the melting glaciers, that's awfully specific. I'm not sitting in front of the glaciers. Well, no, but you do know awe. You do know a yearning. You do know what it means to have a feeling to exist. And yet that specific feeling of awe and yearning, well, that too is not even the deepest ground. It's that there is an experience. That is the deepest ground. And you don't need to try and see your transcendent self, which isn't even possible, to try and find this thing. It's like the old looking for the forest, but you only see trees kind of metaphor, because you can't see yourself, you can't see your own eyes, but it's only by dropping the identification with these things, memories, thoughts, your body, emotions. Anything you identify with is what's blocking you from stepping into that self with a capital S, the witness. And the Buddhists, well, they call this emptiness. And it's funny that it's called emptiness because it really really should be called fullness in a sense. Because when you realize a larger context, then the thing that was context, before you realized the larger context, becomes an object. So it's like the, the, you're in a shoebox and that is your bedroom. And you're living life in a shoebox until you grow a little bit. You, you're no longer an ant, but you pop and you turn into a house cat. And then all of a sudden you see the shoebox and you're in a room. And you think, oh, okay, so no, this isn't my room. This is my room. And the shoebox is just a just a bigger part of that, a smaller part of that. And then the house cat is sort of living around this, ha- this house and they're thinking, whoa, okay, so this is it. But then poof, and then you turn into something else, an axolotl. I don't know, something that's bigger than a cat. Is an axolotl bigger than a cat? I don't know. Maybe not. Well, maybe you, you turn into a bird. Is an axolotl a bird? I don't know. Let's just say you turn into any bird. You can choose your breed. And then all of a sudden you go, oh, the house is not the world. This is the world. Now, by this metaphor, by this same way, we have the human condition, the inner world of thoughts and feelings and memories. And by dropping these things that you have, these thoughts and these feelings, well, then that's like making a a very small, subtle step from the shoebox to the bedroom, to the house, to the bird that's flying around outside looking at all the different houses. And if you continue that, you keep doing that, well, eventually you pop into the sense of the sense of ground the source you can't zoom back any further you turn inside out and that's what the Buddhists are talking about when they talk about emptiness it's the void and well the more void you can be then the more full you are because then it's like this is why this is why I'm saying that emptiness should be really fullness Because the cat now has not only just the shoebox, but they've got the bedroom and the shoebox. And now the bird has, well, maybe not. Maybe they don't have the shoebox because they only have outside and the metaphor breaks down. But let's say the bird does have the shoebox and the bedroom and the outside. Well, then they're more full. But that's just another example of how this works metaphorically. And by this time, well, Ken's been talking about No Boundary or reading No Boundary to Treya for some hours. And he reads some other things as well. He reads some from the Guru or some Sherlock Holmes or just just even some comics as well. And Trey is sort of pacing around, sort of really agitated and just really sick. And then all of a sudden she bolts to the bathroom. And that is that that round of the chemicals has ended. And this triggered her vomiting. And for the next nine hours, every 30 minutes... She was vomiting. And that is that, well, that's one of the side effects of chemotherapy, is excessive vomiting. And it's just how it happens. And it's a very different kind of vomiting to your normal vomiting. Normally when you vomit, well, the reason you're vomiting is that there's something in you that needs to get out. There's a poison in you which your stomach has reacted to, so it expels it. But in the case of chemotherapy, well, you haven't put anything into your stomach. It's something that's occurred within the stomach on a cellular level because you've been putting something into your blood. You might say, how is it possible that someone can vomit that much? Well, sadly, that's how it goes. Sadly, that's one of the side effects. And Treya wrote in her diary that at some point in this first evening of chemotherapy, with all the nausea and all the vomiting and all the anxiety, she reached a turning point. She was no longer into worrying. She says the chemo almost seemed part of her path. Or it seemed like it was part of her journey. Like she had accepted it, even though it was only just beginning. So she's not fighting it anymore. She's not doubting it. There's no sense of, oh, should I be doing this or not? She's giving in. And she's just watching what goes and what comes. And she's starting to feel that maybe this chemotherapy is actually a way of her to move beyond her worry. Like slaying the dragon of worry that has haunted her in her life. And this is a big step. And it's because she can meditate. Perhaps it's also because she's got Ken Wilbur reading these texts to her. Perhaps it's also because she's got her own understanding. Perhaps it's also Ken Wilbur's support. But really, it comes down to well, Treya, her character, her soul, her strength. As she is able to get through this. And from then on, well, actually, things did change because they had to change, they, they found out that there was a reaction in this first course, and so they decided to change the chemicals around. And the anti nausea. Component, well, you don't have to just use Benadryl for that. And she ended up using THC. So she had tried Companzine as well, but basically THC does the trick. So medical marijuana, baby, smoke one up. I doubt she was smoking it. I mean, there's many ways to administer THC. I wonder if THC comes in a pill form for this. It might. I'm suspecting it does. But then, well, she's got this, she can go home and she's got this now sort of routine of going through the poisoning. And for each few weeks, well, she has this catheter dripping poison into her. And actually also, they do mention that, well, once they got the chemicals right, Treya didn't vomit. And Ken does want to say that this description of chemotherapy is not always the... Well, you can't take it as this is how chemotherapy always is. Because first of all, this is a high dosage, very aggressive chemotherapy. Second of all, she had a reaction. So it's not always like this. And physically... Treya is managing the chemotherapy fairly well, considering. But at this point in the story, there's something they're starting to overlook. And that is the emotional, psychological, and spiritual devastation that the whole ordeal is having on them. So it's happening again and again, and it's starting to wear them down. And it does depend on her white blood cell count, when she gets the next dose, when she gets the next round. So it's almost like she's poisoning her body and then waiting for it to recover. And then when it recovers, well, then she's ready again and then she poisons it again. And her hair falls out and there's this funny moment where she's got a bald head and... Ken and Trey are standing in the bathroom looking in the mirror, both bald. And Ken says, Oh my God, we look like the melon section in the supermarket. <laughs> and then he says, Promise me one thing, we don't go bowling. <laughs> so that's very funny, isn't it? You don't want to go bowling with your girlfriend when you're both bald as round headed. <laughs> And then there's also this thing of, well, she's lost a breast. And Ken says, no, let's have a little bit of fun with this. So he puts on her prosthetic breast. And they actually do a bit of a photo shoot, a nude photo shoot of bald heads and one breast each. So (laughs) that's a very funny way to get around this grimness of having your body carved up, isn't it? It's a very funny thing to do. And he says, well, talk about androgony. <laughs> you know what an- androgony is? I had to look it up. I'd never known about it. But it's basically combining the masculine and feminine. And you, you see this in fashion. You There's a certain look in fashion where you don't know. You think, you know, they're a little bit feminine, but also it's a boy, but you don't know they're a bit elegant, but they're also a bit shady certain body parts are accentuated some aren't these sorts of things if you look at it in fashion you can see what it is but the idea of combining the masculine and feminine well it's not just a fashion idea that's actually a psychological idea that's an it's a identity personality concept for integrating the masculine and feminine And Traya also has a sort of cancer support network in Santa Monica. There's a wellness center there, and things are starting to wear down. I mean, they have little laughs, but there's another side story here, which is that she's in the well center, the care center, and there are other patients around, and. One of these guys makes a comment about suicide and about how, well, actually, maybe it makes sense to check out, as they say. And one of the other patients had said, oh, no, don't be like that. You should look up. And it's like, well, I have bone cancer. How do you feel? What are you going to say to that? And, well, in a sense, people need to make their decisions about how they feel about their lives. And respecting that means including respecting their decision to say, well, I feel like dying. Now, it's different to actually have them go through with it. That's different. But if you think someone feels like dying, you don't want to say to them, hey, you shouldn't feel that way or you shouldn't think that way. Maybe it is the right way to feel. Maybe it is the right thing to do. And what is, what is changing your thinking going to do in that situation? Like, say, say he is thinking wrong. It's not like a switch. It's not like we have on and off switches of the will to live and the will to die. Click on, click off. That's not how it works at all. And we've seen that with Trey's story so far. I've seen that in so many ways with Treya. And at this point in her chemotherapy, while she's got the looming threat of an early death, it might be that the chemo doesn't work and she's only got nine months to live. So these are complicated things and these are issues that come up and there's just this small scene where this guy says, he was thinking it would be a good way to die. A good time to die. And then there's also this thing where someone calls up, Treya and Ken, and Ken answers the phone, and it's someone who's got cancer, or someone who knows someone who's got cancer, and they want to ask some questions. And Ken talks to them and then hangs up. But then Treya gets upset that, well, why didn't they want to talk to me? And why didn't you suggest... They talk to me. And this is a big issue. This actually makes them fight. This makes makes them arc up and get angry at each other for the first time in a very long time. Because Ken feels, well, do I have to always worry about you? Can I not even answer the phone? Can I not even just speak to someone without wondering how will it affect you? And then they're talking about, well, how you visualize the cancer cells. And Ken says, well, I actually visualize these as quite aggressive. And Trey says, no, don't say that. Don't share your opinion because that's going to ruin my visualization. I've been doing these visualizations of the cancer is confused and weak and the therapy chemicals are going in to fight it. And now you're saying this to me, how can you do that? And again, he says, well, can I not even just share my own opinion? What should I do? Should I lie to you? There's obviously a lot of tension between them. And Ken is really starting to get worn down. And there's one snide comment that he makes, which he says, I'm going to grow my hair out so I can pull it out. And that is a ruthless thing to say to a chemotherapy patient i'm going to grow my hair just so i can express my stress and anger at you and in a sense this comment i'm going to pull my i'm going to grow my hair out just so that i can pull it out that's a reflection of well it's a reflection of ken wilber's wit And it's a switchover from his humor. Now, all the way through this story so far, Ken has had some amazingly funny moments. He's got this genius sense of humor. This remarkable ability to make light of the situation. And all these little comments that he comes up with. Well, we just have to laugh and we just have to think, oh, isn't it great to have you around? But here, that same skill... That same wit is upside down. And he's been able to come up with a phrase which really just bites hard and just expresses so much bitterness. And it really is a loaded statement. I'm going to grow my hair out so I can pull it out. Can you imagine saying that to someone who's lost their hair because of chemotherapy, because they have cancer? That really is some bitter words. So at this point in the story, it's been about a year and a half they've been married. And in that time, Trey has had one major operation followed by six weeks of radiation then a recurrence then another major operation and now she's in the middle of the most hardcore, brutal chemotherapy. And she's got the possibility of death still hanging over her. And Ken at this stage well he's not writing he's stopped writing his books and up until this point well for the last over 10 years odd he's been writing about a book a year he basically just he basically is always writing and also actually at this stage he stops meditating and this is because he's so exhausted is because he's got so much on his mind. This is because he just forgets, because he's so caught up in, well, having to worry about Treya and caring for Treya. And at the same time, well, they're also trying to move into this new house, which is still being built. And they're helping build it, and they're doing all that as well. So there's a lot going on. There's a lot happening, they're right in the thick of it, and they're starting to become bitter towards each other. And at this point in the story, they move in to their new house, and this is where the really gruesome ordeal begins. And that's where we leave the end of Chapter 8, Who Am I? And of course, we'll be back very soon with the next chapter in this series, Impressions of Grace and Grit. And that's all I have to say for now.